You're listening to Working, the show about what people do all day. I'm your host, Jordan Weissman, and we're going to be continuing our summer of fun and play this week. Last week, you met some of the people who are responsible for designing Transformers, the toys. This week, we're going in a slightly different and I would say just gloriously nerdy direction. You are going to be meeting Allison Lures, who is one of the narrative designers for Dungeons and Dragons and Magic the Gathering. Like I said, this is going to be nerdy, and I am very excited about it because when I was a teenager, I did some Dungeons and Dragons. I played a lot of Magic the Gathering. This is the kind of job that I never would have thought existed, but if I had found out at age 15, my career path might have been slightly different. So I'm pretty sure that most of you listening right now have probably heard of Dungeons & Dragons. It's the classic fantasy role-playing game. It's been around forever. Magic the Gathering has also been around for a very long time. It's the classic fantasy card game at this point, but it's a little bit more niche, so just in case you don't know the rules or aren't totally familiar, I'll give you a very basic layout right now. In the game, you're basically a wizard competing, trying to annihilate your opponent, who is also a wizard. You've got a deck of cards, and you use it to cast spells. There are different kinds of magic or colors of magic. You got red, green, black, blue, and white. Those colors are going to come up a little bit during the interview. And what you're doing is you are hurling lightning bolts at your opponent, or you are using your cards to put a dragon on the table or a warrior or a goblin that's then going to attack your opponent. You know, it's kind of the forerunner to games like Pokemon. So the thing about Magic is that it's not just a card game. There's all this story around it. There's all this lore. You have to know who the goblins and the wizards and the dragons are, and they have characters. And that is Allison's job. And she does this for Dungeons & Dragons as well. She is the world builder. She is the person who comes up with that vast trove of lore to make everything internally consistent and interesting. And she makes sure that it's a story as well as a game. It was a really, really fun conversation, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. What's your name, and what do you do? My name is Allison Lures. I'm a senior narrative designer at Wizards of the Coast. And what are you designing narrative for? What does Wizards of the Coast do exactly? So Wizards of the Coast is a game company. We own lots of different game properties. Uh, The two that we're probably best known for are Magic the Gathering and Dungeons and Dragons. And I get to be the narrative designer for both of those properties' digital products. For the digital projects specifically. Yeah, I used to work in uh, the tabletop like card games for Magic. And over the last year, I've gotten to dip my toes into more of the uh, video game space. There's a lot I want to start unpacking here. But first, I feel like most listeners probably know what Dungeons and Dragons is um, and have prob- so. <laughs> probably played at some point in their life or saw someone playing. Magic, I feel like a lot of people listening probably know it too, but just for those who don't, what is Magic the Gathering? Magic the Gathering is a tabletop card game. Uh, so it is uh, a game that you have a uh, deck of cards. You are a planeswalker. Uh, and so that means that you are a person who can travel around the multiverse and use magic to fight basically against another person. So you as a player have your deck of cards and you are casting spells against your opponent who is also casting spells at you. And uh, that's basically the game, more or less. Yeah, I mean, it it was the forerunner to Pokemon and sort of all those games. You're going up against another player with a deck and you're kind of, you know, putting beasts on the table and fighting each other, right? Exactly. Yeah, it uh, started in the like early 1990s and is uh, very much the precursor to a lot of those uh, card games that you uh, hear about nowadays. And so you're the narrative designer. 
Mm-hmm. What does that mean exactly? What so I mean, most people think of a card game and they're not thinking about a narrative necessarily. So what are you writing a narrative for? So it is trying to come up with what is the story behind what we're doing right now? The term that we use in the building is the idea of a creative conceit. So we know that mechanically I'm sitting down and I have my deck of cards and I am playing a card against somebody else. And that mechanically makes a thing in the game happen. But if we're looking at this through the lens of story, I am a wizard and I am casting a spell. What kind of spell is that? What does it look like? What does it feel like? What is the environment around me that allows me to cast that spell? As the narrative designer, it's my job to kind of come up with the fantasy behind why everything is happening. So a lot of what I do is coming up with what is the uh, culture that this wizard is from? What kinds of uh, environments did they grow up in? What is the history and the politics of why these two groups are fighting right now? The narrative designer is kind of to games what a screenwriter is to movies. But our medium isn't just words. It's also uh, pictures and visuals and sometimes audio if I'm doing it for a digital game. So it's my job to advocate for that story when working with other game designers uh, to try and find ways to marry the mechanics of gameplay with a story that makes people more invested. In fantasy and in sci-fi, you hear a lot about world building. Right. That's Mm -hmm. the phrase like, you know, George Lucas was the first great world builder. Tolkien was a great world builder. It sounds like sort of that's what you're doing. You're world building for these games. Yeah, that is uh, quite literally what I do for my job. So when I'm starting to work on a new product, the thing that I'll start with is typically world building to create the imaginary place where all of this happens. So that starts with working at a really, really high, broad level and then kind of funneling your way down to the stuff that impacts characters' everyday lives. So world building will typically start with defining what is the cosmology of this place. For Magic the Gathering, for example, we know that it takes place in a multiverse. There are an infinite amount of worlds that are all connected to each other and there are special people who can travel in between them. So from that, if we accept that as the reality of our world building, we can work down uh, into, okay, if If there is a multiverse, then are there gods? Is there a pantheon on this plane? If there are gods, are there um, other kinds of legendary figures? And from there, we can go down into what's the geography of this place? What are the cultures that live here? Uh, Until finally we get down to what is this Planeswalker's uh, favorite ice cream flavor, for example. (laughs) You you can kind of like build yourself all the way down until you get to that story level. Do you actually give the Planeswalker a favorite ice cream? Um, is that, is that a note? We definitely have some. I can tell you the favorite foods of some of our most popular planeswalkers, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. It's my job to know everything from, uh, yeah, what is the shape of the cosmos to what kind of jacket uh, does one character like to wear over another. You do this for the online game, you said, as opposed to the classic card game. What is the difference between those two things? I've done both. So I used to work on the tabletop card game. So that's the version with the actual cardboard that you play. And I've also worked with Magic and D&D and uh, a lot of digital games as well. The difference, I think, is that there are some things that you can do in the video games that you just can't do in tabletop. So I never had to think about what a spell sounds like uh, until I worked in video games. In Magic, a, a lot of what we what we express from a creative standpoint is the art that you see on every single card. And when you're writing an art description, you don't have to think about what you know a thunderbolt sounds like as compared to a fireball. 
But when you're in the digital space, that visual has to have an audio element attached to it. So now you're not just thinking about, well, what does this counterspell sound like? You're also wondering like, okay, well, how does a Gorgon's hair move, for example? You know, like (laughs) now I have to think about movement and audio in addition to the uh, visual aspect of characters. You're animating the goblin. Yes, it is my job to describe how goblins move sometimes. So a little bit of personal background. I used to play magic. I used to, when I was a teenager, I spent a lot of time in card shops and neutral ground in New York City and casting spells for <laughs> versus my opponents Excellent. and playing tournaments. And the way it worked back then is that, you know, there'd be like a new release. There'd be like a, they, they, each year or so they'd come out with like, okay, here's the new set of cards. And everyone would get very excited and, you know, you'd start building new decks and you'd start coming up with new combinations of cards that you could use. Is that still how it works? That every year, essentially, there's like a new set of cards, a new, there's a new addition? It's about four or five new sets of cards a year. Okay, okay, so it's a lot more. It's a lot more, yeah. And so what, what that means for us is we have to have a really efficient way to create the new worlds that those new sets are part of. For people who've never laid eyes on these cards, you know, what is in an addition? Like, what is that going to encompass? So uh, a new set of magic cards is typically between like two and 350 new cards that you can play. So these would be like, imagine in your head, like a playing card and a typical magic card has a really pretty piece of art ideally at the top and a line of text underneath that tells you what the effect is of that card and so we make uh, a couple hundred of those uh, for every new set and we make about four or five new sets a year so every year we're adding around a thousand new cards into the repertoire of magic cards that exists which i think and i I may be super wrong at this point is about eighteen thousand. wow it's a lot it's a lot yeah it's a lot and you're adding an extra thousand every year essentially yes and so where does that process begin? Do you start world building first and then they design what the effects of the cards are going to be? Or do they decide we want cards that are going to do X kind of a thing to the players, you know, have, you know, do this much damage and you're going to build a world around that? It's kind of both. So the way that we work in the building, the person who's in charge of designing the cards, like designing the mechanics of what they do, uh, is working in tandem with the creative lead. So they're both kind of feeding off of each other. The mechanical designer, for example, might say, hey, I really want a card set that's built around different groups fighting each other. Like we know that we want players to be able to play certain kinds of decks. How do I make sure that they do that? And it would be my job to say, well, what is if it was a group of elves fighting a group of goblins fighting a group of vampires. That way, we we try to marry those two concepts as early as possible. That way, the final product is a lot more integrated than it would be if we just like ram jammed the uh, world building in at the very end. The part of what makes magic, I think, so engaging is that it is an incredibly mechanically deep, deep, deep game. But it also is so well integrated with the creative that it's it's impossible to tell where one starts and the other begins. And that means that we're doing our job well. So where do you begin your process when you are trying to create these worlds? All good world building to me should come from some observation of something that's true in the world. Most fantasy worlds are built off of an idea of what the Middle Ages was like with magic, right? And that is typically 
how most fictional places are made up. I may think of what is a real world culture that I want to see in a fantasy setting, or it could be uh, what is an idea that hasn't really been tackled with magic as a solution before. There's no like real right way to go about it. The breadth of fiction and fantasy and sci-fi in the world is pretty evident that there's there's no one way to do it. But for me, making a world feel like it could be real means that it has to have some kind of leg in a reality that we can relate to. So I could go off and world build for a set that takes place like exclusively in some sort of dreamscape, for example. A really important part uh, would be to start as big as possible and make sure that you never forget that this is a place where an imaginary person needs to actually live and actually survive. So I like to try and think of things like a Wikipedia article, as insane as that sounds. So beginning with uh, what are the rules of this place? How does magic work? What does it look like in a broad sense for a group of people to live here? And then you kind of work your way down. So after you establish what the rules are here, and I mean like physics rules, can people fly? Where do people get water from? Like those kinds of really, really big questions. And then whittling down into, okay, so this is how a country of people survives. How does a city of people survive? How does a community survive? How does a family survive? And how does an individual uh, go about their everyday lives? So it's starting with that really big question of, okay, if we are making a world that is based around dreams, what are the tropes that you would see in that sort of space? Do you go into an Alice in Wonderland kind of feel or maybe some sort of like surrealist data exploration of dreamscapes? And now we can throw in some things that kind of put your foot in reality. Um, what if this place resembled Paris in the 1920s, for example? How does that impact the original idea that we had and how can we smush those together into something unique? And so from there, you would work your way down. Okay, we know that this is a surrealist dreamscape, Paris 1920s. What is the city like? What is the community like? What is a family like? And working your way down from there. Is that a real world that you have built for magic or for? No, that's a free one. That's Maybe, a free yeah, one. <laughs> that would be, I think that would be popular. Thank you. I, I hope so too. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, th this is very heady stuff. I'm yeah. curious, when you're developing this idea, are you writing it as a brief? Is there a memo? What is your actual work product? My work product is coming up with the documentation that puts all of this in a place there where people can reference it daily. So the work that I do is uh, defining all of this so that our artists and our game designers can look through the document for inspiration. So using the uh, Paris 1920s dreamscape, for example, maybe one of our card designers will be stuck like, oh man, I'm trying to think of some way to make sure that uh, I can stop a creature that is too big from attacking me. Maybe they flip through and find, oh, like this is a world where there are a lot of parties, for example. It's Paris in the 1920s. Of course there's parties. Maybe I can create a mechanic that feels like that to stop a problem that's happening in the game. So the document that I come up with is typically called the World Guide. It is is uh, several uh, like dozens of thousands of words long. It's a really big document that is designed so that people can use it as a source of truth. And we share that within our building, with our partners. Whoever's working with our products can look at this document, can scroll down to the section where they find out what everyone's favorite ice cream flavor is, and it's there mm -hmm. as a source of truth. 
What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion, living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash working. Rules and restrictions may apply. So take me through the chapters of this world document. I'm imagining this is as a, you know, it's a book. It's a guide. I mean, like, you know, is there a section that's like, this is what it looks like? These are the characters. How is it broken down? Yeah, so it's typically broken down for magic specifically by color. Color is a really big deal in the in Magic the Trading Guard game. Uh, so different colors can do different things. So one of the first things that we do when designing for a magic world is decide what does what does red look like here? What does blue look like here? And when I'm saying red and blue, I don't necessarily mean like literally the colors. It's the philosophy behind those ideas. So how would these colors operate in a kind of esoteric way in this world. Red is very aggressive and emotional, and it usually deals with mountains and geology. And so we may start with, okay, uh, so we're just going to stick with Paris in the 1920s because that's something that we already talked about. Yeah, we're already there. Uh, we're developing this this world right now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Live on is, air. You're getting some free work right now, so you're welcome. Uh, <laughs> We know that there were a lot of parties, for example, in in Paris in the uh, in the early 20th century. That is a good source of red magic. Perhaps people here get their power from celebrations and from those sort of like fun, like hedonistic activities. Uh, lots of love and passion. We also know that this is a dreamscape that we established earlier, which is very blue. Blue cares about knowledge and illusions. Maybe blue here uh, looks like a giant library where you can access information in books that are not physical. You have to pull them out, I don't know, of a pull them out of a hat or something. And maybe like every little piece of paper will turn into a giant book. So we typically start with deciding what is the feeling of each of the different colors of magic here. If we're world building for Dungeons and Dragons, for example, uh, we may do the same thing, but for the different classes. What do uh, bards look like here? What do rogues look like here? How would a, uh, a fighter go about purchasing and doing their everyday lives? So we start with the really big buckets and then move down into environments. What does the city physically look like? What does 
does the countryside look like? What is the architecture and the visual motifs that tell us we are in a city from this part of the world versus we are in the countryside in this other part of the world? And those environment sections are what our artists are going to use later on when they're trying to figure out what this place looks like from a visual perspective. If we go further down in our imaginary world guide for this uh, world that I'm increasingly falling in love with, we'll get to cultures. Where are the costumes like? What do people wear if they're from this country or another? And how, how is that reflected in their visual design? And so uh, we kind of keep break it down from there. If you pull up a Wikipedia article on pretty much any country, they'll go into these similar buckets of what is the culture like here? What's the economy? How do people make money? What does money look like? What can you buy with money? What more importantly, can't you buy with money that people may buy secretly? How does the average working person get their cash versus how does a really, really rich person get their cash? So you're just writing this giant fantasy encyclopedia. It's yes. like it, it is the encyclopedia entry for a world that does not exist, but you are going to try and, and create a online and in paper. Exactly. And in this particular world, I feel like Ernest Hemingway is about to become a card. Like he's going. Oh, to without a doubt. <laughs> yeah. So that's actually the next step after coming up with what is the culture and the economy and the politics is getting down into who are the power players? Like who's important here? So I imagine that, yeah, the this world's version of Ernest Hemingway definitely exists. He would be a red green legend. Uh, <laughs> <if I get laughs> dipping into magic terms. I, that feels right to me for what it's worth. <laughs> So you at that point, you start coming up with the individual characters and that's on you to come up with the kind of the central figures of this world. Yeah. So I'll typically look at how might a power player affect this fantasy world? If we know that, yeah, this is Paris and we're basing this off of a real place, who are some real figures uh, who we would want our players to think of when they are playing this game? So if we if we tell everyone, yeah, we're our new set coming out this fall, it's going to be Paris uh, dreamscape in the 1920s. Our fans would probably say what you just said, which is, uh, hey, I feel like Ernest Hemingway might be here. And pro we would probably have a figure who is reminiscent of, of that character. Or we may look at it and say, well, there's a really good spot here for a corrupt cop who might be working in this world. Uh, what kind of character would that be? Like, how are how are they fighting all of this hedonism in the streets? And we would then create a character who fills that slot and uh, is ideally a fleshed out character from the top down. Since, yeah, this, this game can have characters, so we should probably make them. Let's say you're, you have a card, an effect that has come to you. They want a card that does X. How do you decide if that card's going to be a goblin or an elf or a fairy of some kind or paladin? Take me through your mental process there. Oh, my gosh. Okay, buckle up. Uh, it's So the answer I'm about to give is the kind of answer that's going to sound really, really, really jargony, because it is. Let it loose. Just go for okay. it. Okay. Let's, let's get some so, of the, the um, Wizards of the Coast jargon. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm just I'm just going to I'm just going to go no holds bar here. So uh, if I get a card uh, that has a certain X effect, I'll typically know what the mechanic is, what the casting cost is and what color it is. Uh, so the casting cost is how much of your own player energy it costs to get a creature or a spell into play. And the color, like I said earlier, is more philosophical based than it is actual, this is a red creature, this is a blue. It's, it's philosophy more than anything else. So I'll typically look at the color first to kind of tell me what sort of creature this might be. Some creatures can only be certain colors, so there typically isn't any flying creatures in green, for example. Green creatures don't fly, but blue creatures usually do. 
so if a card is blue, I might look at the text next to see what does this thing do? Maybe it has flying. And so I'll go, okay, it's a blue flying card. It could be a fairy. It could be a bird. It could be a wizard with a jetpack. It could be um, a really enthusiastic, I don't know, a lizard that managed to grow wings like a coaddle or something. And that will kind of inform me what the art description needs to be. So from there, I look to the rest of the card. So if it does have flying, okay, uh, let's say this is a, uh, a bird, for example. Maybe this is a card that tells you to draw two cards when you put it onto, this, onto the battlefield. For me, as the creative, that's code for, okay, I, as a wizard, am gaining more knowledge. I am learning something. I am adding to the repertoire of spells that I know. How can I show that this thing will give you knowledge? Maybe it's an owl. Uh, owls are associated with knowledge and wisdom, uh, so maybe the creature is an owl. Or maybe it is a uh, like some sort of regular bird with, I don't know, uh, glowing blue orbs that it uh, carries in each of its claws. And inside each of those orbs, I can see like stars or people or some sort of thing that I don't quite know. So when the narrative designer is looking at a specific card to write an art description, it's kind of this like really bizarre game that we play of trying to connect the dots and look through this mechanic as code for, okay, this is mechanically telling me something, thinking through the code that I know, what can I show this as? So it is sometimes a tricky process if you get a mechanic that's really, really heady. And other times it's as simple as uh, this is a 5-5 uh, five, five white card. Cool. It's an elephant. That's, <laughs> that's about elephant-sized. Wonderful. That's perfect. Uh, yep. All of this sounds like it's so much about kind of intuition and gut feel for what will make sense in in this world you've created and to the players who have been engaging with these cards for so long. Do you ever get your ideas rejected? Does everyone say like, no, that that wizard of the jetpack is just not going to not going to fly? He's... Oh, every day. All <laughs> oh, the yeah. time. Yeah. All, all the time. Yeah. And I'm kind of thankful for my background in theater <laughs> because I, I was trained in people telling me, no, you can't do this. And so being able to respect your coworkers and respect your collaborators and recognize that they're coming from a place of expertise and kindness, typically, yeah. it makes that everyday rejection a lot easier. I come up with a whole lot of bad ideas, like so many bad ideas. What's an example of a, a failed idea that you've had? A failed idea is typically something only I would like. <laughs> So not not every idea is for every person. And sometimes you may come up with an idea that just tickles your fancy that you think is just the best and coolest thing. Oh, I thought of a good one. Um, for a long time, I really wanted a main character. So a planeswalker who would be a centaur. I okay. really wanted a crotchety old centaur, like a get off my porch centaur who just wants to sit around and not have anyone do magic around them and just mind his own beeswax. Uh, I thought that was just the funniest thing in the universe. I like and that. It's kind of like Oscar the Grouch as a magic character. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, and I thought it would be a really great villain. Uh, you know, this this crotchety centaur who's mono green and just doesn't want anyone to do magic near his house. That, to me, would be a really interesting foil to go up against if you're a wizard who travels around and suddenly there's this old man who's yelling at you, no, you can't do magic here, and he has four hooves. It's hilarious. 
no one else thought it was funny. It was just me. Uh, <laughs> so that, was that, that like a that was it failed fairly was, dramatically? Was there like a pitch meeting where you did the whole thing and I, like? Oh yeah, yeah. We we'll we'll have regular meetings talking about ideas uh, for new characters and mm-hmm. um, yeah, I was I hyped myself up and I was so ready and it went down like a like a lead balloon with four hooves. Yeah, <laughs> just totally sank. Yeah, that's okay. I'll, I'll save my crotchety centaur for some other time. When you're pitching that crotchety centaur, do you have like art already made up or are you just verbally doing it? Or are you just describing it? Sometimes it's both. Uh, it kind of depends on if I can convince an art director that my idea is a good one. <laughs> Being able to get someone on your team who knows how to draw centaurs is always a plus. I highly recommend it. Uh, but typically it'll just be a verbal description of a new character. But if you collaborate with someone uh, who does have those art skills, it helps a lot to sell your idea when you can show what they actually look like. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance Plus, save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. How many people are involved in creating this encyclopedia? Is it just you for a single set of cards or is it a team effort? It's usually a team effort. So our narrative designers will work with our art directors on these. Uh, so it's typically the narrative designer writing everything after a, a multitude of meetings with art directors to kind of uh, collaboratively come up with a place. So usually it's a team of about three to four people who are writing these world guides. And for Magic, since it has about like four releases a year, that means we're coming up with two or three world guides, like brand new ones every single year. Every single year. Every single year. That's a lot. a whole lot of work. Yeah. Are you working on every single one of those? Not every single one. I work on, oh my gosh, I'm currently working on three different publishing titles. I've collaborated on four or five different world guides in the past. Everyone kind of is spread out because there's so much there's so much new places that still need to be made. So we'll, we'll kind of dip our toes into a lot of different places. It's nice to have variety. I imagine that if I were just working on one world at a time, you'd get kind of sick of it fast. Like, yeah, writing this thing about weird Dada 1919 Paris is cool, but I would really like to be writing about uh, a pirate adventure right now. You know, it's nice to have a little bit of ways to spread out. So we have lots of people working on each of these world guides at a time. Is there like lore that you're coming up with, too? Are you thinking of, you know, the way George R. R. Martin has several thousand words of backstory for every family in, in his world? Is that sort yeah. of something you're doing, too? Absolutely. That lore is the world guides. So these documents like that, that is canon. That's our lore. And... A concept that I talk about a lot is the idea of an iceberg. 
So the player who's ingesting the product, like the player who's sitting down and, uh, you know, slinging cards and having a good time with their friends, they're going to see just the tip of what creatively we come up with for any given world. And perhaps if they're the kind of fan who's really invested and goes on uh, social media and chats with their friends about the lore and reads the stories, they may know a little a little bit more of, of the iceberg. They're still above the surface, uh, but it's more than just like the little tippy top that the average player gets. And it's our job to make sure that there is a mountain of content underneath that, that the player will never see. In order for a world to feel real, it needs to have all of those questions answered in some way on the back end. So even though it may never end up on a card or may never end up in a story, all of the answers to those questions still have to exist somewhere. And that's what this documentation is for. Why do they have to exist? For a place to feel real. It's easy to come up with a really surface level uh, fantasy world. But what makes it real are those human touches and those human explanations. Is part of the idea to head off people saying, oh, that, that doesn't make internal sense. Like people talking about how the end of uh, Avengers didn't make any sense if you went back and forth in the time and the timeline and things just didn't line up. Like, is that kind of Absolutely. what you're trying to, because you want to make sure it's airtight? Yes, because we're the ones asking those questions too. If I ever catch myself saying, well, it doesn't actually make sense if we try and do this thing. It's my job to make it make sense. So it's less about uh, heading off uh, enthusiastic fans and more about making sure that we're answering all of our questions on the inside, too. As long as we know the rules for how this world works, then we can play around with them and we can break them and we can uh, find the interesting ways to interpret those rules. But in order for us to play in the sandbox, we need to have edges of the sandbox existing in the first place. From start to finish, how long does it take to create one of these worlds, one of these encyclopedias? It's about a six to eight month process on the short end. Uh, I'm currently working on a project that will take about a year and a half. Is that secret project? It's so secret. It's super secret. <laughs> it's yeah. Se- How often do you use ideas from fans? Uh, typically never. Um, it is uh, very expressly against what we are illegally, illegally allowed to recognize. Um, we, we just don't really ask fans for ideas since then. Uh, they're, they're kind of employees, too, and you should pay people for their work. Sometimes we'll take suggestions from what we know fans would like. Uh, so if we know that there's something that fans have been asking for a while, then we may follow through on that. But as far as like direct, like, hey, you should make that crotchety centaur as much as I want that to happen. Uh, we, we can't actually take those card ideas from fans. So something sort of in the, the general conversation, like it would be cool to do this with, you know, Squee the Goblin, you know, a card. Oh, Squee. Oh, Squee. Yeah. Squee was a favorite back when I was playing. I don't know if he's still around, but. Oh, uh, Squee's still very popular. Oh, is he? With the, the right goblin crowd, yeah. <laughs> the, the goblin nabob. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we can get real nerdy here if we want. Yeah, we can go deeper. I'm I'm ready. Wait, what, what is Squee up to? Oh, uh, Squee is uh, still alive. Squee's entire deal is that he's a goblin that cannot be killed. So I assume that he's alive and kicking, doing just fine on Dominaria. Oh, that's good. This character is crucial to a lot of decks around. Oh, yeah. Yeah, They cannot die. So they are definitely still alive somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) But so that's interesting. So fans, if something is in the general conversation, you can kind of adopt that into the set. But you guys don't take audience requests. That's that's legally perilous for you. And that's because of IP reasons, among other things. Yeah, yeah. Is that something that frustrates fans? Um, I think they get it. Luckily, when we explain, like, hey, like, we, we can't really, you know, take your direct card submission or even really look at it, usually people are pretty okay with that. Because, like I said earlier, 
games are, especially tabletop games, you can you can just kind of play them the way that you want to play them. And even though it may not be like in a sanctioned event or whatever, like if you're having fun with your friends and playing your house rules and you really, really want to have like this one spell that you made up for your rogue in D&D, like you can play that with your friends at your tabletop, uh, your like house rules game. We can't really stop that. So obviously those uh, casual situations are very different from sanctioned tournaments. Uh, That's very much not a thing that we allow fans to mess around with. But we want our fans to have fun with our characters and with our games. And uh, yeah, if there's an idea we know a lot of people like, then we may explore that. But usually fans are pretty okay when we explain, hey, people should be paid for their work. So don't give your stuff away for free. This encyclopedia, you use it to create, obviously, sets of cards, I guess, adventures, storylines for Dungeons and Dragons. Are there other kinds of products that it's used in? Yeah, we have all sorts of uh, cross IP experiences that are happening. People tell our stories in lots of different ways. Stranger Things has uh, is largely based on Dungeons and Dragons. And it's important for us to know that the stuff that we make for our games is going to end up in places that aren't necessarily our games, which makes these documents even more important, since uh, those other mediums may ask questions that we don't have answers for. What is the most kind of narrative intensive game you work on? Ooh, it's D&D. Yeah. It's D&D by a long shot. Yeah. Why is that? D&D is kind of a, a, a it's kind of a quilt, um, but it's a quilt that was made by hundreds and hundreds of people just kind of adding stuff onto the edge. So what began as a series of adventure modules in the uh, 70s and 80s, people have added to on the sides for years and years and years. And now it's a nearly like 50 year old property with lore that expands past so many other different properties and just has a scope that's really hard to wrap your head around. And so doing anything with a world that's that expansive is, is going to take a little bit of a philosophical, very esoteric narrative muscle. So I, I think that's the one that's the most fun challenge to deal with. Does all of that accumulated lore necessarily make sense at this point? I mean, like, is there is that part of the challenge that, you know, people? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. A good chunk of the challenge is finding a way for all of it to make sense. <laughs> so uh, D&D's kind of solved it by putting the power in the player's hands. So we can establish a truth for what the Forgotten Realms looks like or what Greyhawk looks like or other imaginary places. But ultimately, when a player sits down with their friends at their kitchen table and uh, plays uh, an, a campaign of Dungeons & Dragons, whatever we tell them, they don't have to listen to it. They're players, so they can choose uh, what parts of the world that they want to use and which parts they want to ignore. But since we want to think about our IP in terms of not just tabletop, it's up to us to kind of find ways to rein in some of the more wily parts uh, of that 50-year-old lore and find ways for all of it to feel cohesive. Instead of like a tacked-on quilt, make the quilt look like it was supposed to be that way. Both D&D and Magic have extremely intense fans. Classic fans with a capital F fans. They're wonderful. Yeah, (laughs) many of them are. Um, But (laughs) fans can also get pretty aggressive and pretty critical. Do you ever get like direct complaints from people about the set, about the lore that you're creating? Oh, for sure. What what kind of stuff do you hear? Oh, I I mean, the things that you would expect to hear. Um, But the trick is that all of it comes from a place of someone caring about something and wanting for something to live up to their expectations or wanting the experience that they have an emotional connection with. And so it's 
my job to listen for sometimes the note behind the note, listen to complaints and try and figure out what, what's this person actually wanting? Like, what is the thing that they're looking for that maybe they're not able to articulate, but that they don't feel is present in the work? And so it's my job to kind of wrangle all of that and channel it into the stuff that I am working on. So after we put something out in the world, I can't really fix it. It's been released and it's out and the universe and everyone's enjoying it. But I can listen to their responses and use that in a wise way in the future. So it, for me, critique is part of what I do. But at the same time, games, especially tabletop games, are a transformative medium. It's up to the fans to do with your work what it what they will. And so I very much try to keep my hands off of something after it's been released into the wild. Since I used to be a fan too, and I am a fan of lots of things, and fandom ingests content and creates something new from that content that they create that was handed to them. So I, I typically try to give people the space to do that. I don't really like to engage too much and instead listen to the feedback that I get and channel it into future work. How did you get into this line of work? I took the most roundabout route to get here. People ask all the time how I scored this job. And my answer is I, I have no idea. I, my background is in theater. So when I was in college, I majored in uh, performance and playwriting. And after I graduated, I was completely ready for a life of uh, waitressing and doing a really experimental theater in the evenings. And that was going to be my life. And I was very comfortable with that. After I graduated, I co-founded a theater company with some friends and I would go to my day job doing uh, just like general social media grunt work. And in my evenings, I'd spend three to five hours just playing pretend and making things and making art with my friends, learning how to collaborate, learning how to collectively work on something and create a story out of nothing. And after a few years of doing social media work, uh, which was perfectly fine, I managed to score a job here um, at Wizards of the Coast doing community management. So it was my job to listen to fans and interpret their criticism, pass it on to the people who could make change. And within the first like couple of weeks of me working here, I learned that there were folks in the building whose job was to write about elves and uh, goblins and dragons. And I kind of said to myself, well, I can do that. I've been doing that in my spare time for years. Yeah, let's give it a shot. And I contacted one of the uh, women who's in charge of the tabletop magic game. At the time, we were publishing stories weekly on our website. And I asked if I could submit a sample of my work for consideration to write for magic. I did, and it was accepted. And that one story I wrote turned into two, which turned into three, and eventually turned into 22, 24 and so, yeah, I, I sidestepped out of community management and social media stuff into narrative design because I had spent all of that time grinding my skills in my evenings and working on storytelling uh, to the best of my abilities. And I, I really credit that background that taught me how to collaborate creatively with others for this job. I wish I had a time machine so I could go back to myself in college and tell me that she was secretly learning how to make games the whole time she was learning how to make theater because the process it's exactly the same. So yeah, it's uh it's been a it's been a journey, but I I feel so grateful that I get to I get to tell stories for a job. That is such an incredible incredible responsibility. You're essentially in charge of creating the Bible for these mm -hmm. for these worlds. You know, the the encyclopedia or I think I've come up with like a million different <laughs> I've called it but a That's bunch okay. of different things at this point. But do you ever then say, Hey, I would like to see 
this card or this specific adventure? Like, do you ever do you ever go and say, I, I would like to see a goblin card that does X in the set? Do oh, you make absolutely. That call? Yeah, one of the perks of the job is uh, definitely being able to call dibs um, on stuff that you want to see in the actual game. All of us who work here are fans of our own product. So there's more than once where someone will design a card for a deck they've been wanting to make, you know, we're all fans here. And uh, yeah, getting to getting to say, you know what, there's this character that was mentioned in a book 12 years ago that I loved and they don't have a card yet. And that's shenanigans. Let's make it right now is something that happens all the time. Do you ever base a character or a card on someone, you know, as like a, a kind of tribute or like gift to a friend? Oh, absolutely. One of the uh, characters that I wrote for a story, I think like three or four years ago, was absolutely based on the personality of my grandmother. Um, like carbon copy. That was that was my little gift to her that she will definitely never read, but it exists for me. So I'm happy with that. To clarify, when you write a story, is that going into the, the sort of larger encyclopedia or is that something separate? That's public. So those are for the public to consume. Magic does a short form and long form fiction nowadays. So in a sense, it's like writing any fantasy fiction, essentially. Exactly. And you're you made your grandmother a character. Yes, that's lovely. Yeah. <laughs> and, she, and, she, and she never read it. No, she never read it. Oh, my God. Which is very her. So it's it's really not a big deal. <laughs> it's like perfectly in character. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah. What's the storyline that you're proudest of? There's two. I wrote the entirety of the stories that happened in the uh, Ixalan and Rivals of Ixalan block. It is a pirate farce with uh, really awesome sort of Mayan warriors who ride dinosaurs. I wrote a good, pretty much all of that, uh, except for one or two stories here and there. Was this a, for a card series or for, or for an yeah, edition? Yeah, so this was for a magic card release. And uh, these were the uh, stories that went out online in tandem with that. I also created a character that was released with uh, the Ravnica set that came out this last year or two and uh, helped introduce one of Magic's first out gay Planeswalkers. And I'm very proud of that. Oh, that's very cool. Who was the character? What was the, what was the Planeswalker's name? The Planeswalker is Ral Zarek, and I created his boyfriend, Tomic. What's his power set? Tomic uh, is a, a kind of a magical lawyer. Uh, so his deal <laughs> is dealing with contracts and rules and laws and finding ways to magically make them physical and very real. So he's, he's sort of like a magical real estate lawyer. Um, he's in charge of making sure that no one trespasses on property and making sure that business deals go smoothly without anyone cheating or a doing anything. A magical it. real estate lawyer. That's, uh -huh. God, I, I could have used one of those recently. <laughs> <laughs> That's so really great. Yeah. I love it. That's so good. This has been a lot of fun chatting. This has been a delight. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much. I love talking about things that aren't real with people. So thank you. <laughs> I kind of hope you follow through on the Paris idea. Man, I hope so too. That's, I'm really in love with that idea now. Ernest, you said you'd think he'd be a, a red-green card, Hemingway? Oh yeah, he's red-green as heck. Yeah. Red-green as heck. Oh yeah, yeah. No, he's super emotional. Uh, he uh, cares about his community. Uh, he's an outdoorsman. That's, he's an outdoorsman. All right. He's red-green. Yeah, he's kind of like a fiery ranger writer type. Exactly, yeah. Maybe a little white in there. Yeah, he deals direct damage, I think. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. direct damage, and he may, I don't think he really buffs people around him. So mostly just like slinging arrows at other folks. <laughs> oh, great. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. <laughs> That's it for this week's episode of Working. I hope you thought that was as glorious as I did. And... I gotta be honest, I really hope that one day there's an Ernest Hemingway card. I really hope Wizards of the Coast has their own version of Papa Hemingway. 
Like just, you know, at least some writer with a giant beard who likes to go like big game hunting or something. Again, they don't take requests as we learned, but like just throwing it out there, I swear I won't bring any kind of an IP suit. I'm releasing you from legal liability. All right, just saying it, just saying it. As usual, if you liked the episode, please go leave us a review. If you have questions, comments, are wondering about my sanity right now listening to this, uh, you write me an email at uh, working at slate.com. The show is, as always, produced by Jessamine Molly, who is being very tolerant of me today. Um, special thank you to Justin D. Wright for the ad music. And uh, catch us next time for more Summer of Fun. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.